You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. This is Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee on this fine October day. Hope you've got your third cup poured. I poured my third cup a minute ago, and you know, I posted a picture earlier this week on the Instagrams of my favorite coffee mug. And I'm going to be honest, I caught a little flack for it. I thought it was going to be because it's a little bit girly looking, which admittedly it is. It's yellow and orange and blue. It's got flowers on it. Not the manly man mug that you might imagine. But what I caught flack for was that it's not very big. Everybody said, well, of course you can drink three cups of coffee. It's a small cup. Well, who needs a 64-ounce coffee cup? Is that like Homer Simpson walking around with a big QT mug? That's, that's not me. I like a small mug. That way the coffee is always hot. This is probably more information than you came to this podcast for. Actually, for some of you, this is exactly the content that you came looking for, and we've covered it quickly. I want to talk about two things before we go into our teaching from Sunday. Number one, working on another podcast series that some of you have already found, uh, working with the team at Modern Day Missions and the Charisma Podcast Network. Now, this week we interviewed Nick Lesmeister, who directs the Center for Israel at Gateway Church in Dallas. And it was fascinating to hear how this local church is pouring into the idea of ministering in and relating to the people of Israel. It was well done. You know, sometimes large churches uh, are unfairly targeted for criticism because their size makes them an easy target, to be quite honest. Almost every megachurch that I have gotten near in any way has had layers and layers and layers of people doing incredible ministry around the world. I know of one uh, megachurch that paid the staff costs for about 20 small local churches that could not afford to stay open. Didn't take them over, just paid the salary of the pastor quietly. And so there are so many things being done by churches large and small that don't get recognized. And uh, this ministry of Gateway Church is really phenomenal and a great resource for the church as a whole. If you search Spotify or Apple Podcasts for Missions in the Modern Day, you should be able to find it. I think we're three weeks into that series and have some other really great episodes coming up as well. Second thing I want to talk about. Sunday evening, we had a Zoe event. Now, every year in the fall, we have done a Zoe's House fundraiser to raise money for adoption. If you know our story, you know that we adopted, I have to think about it, six kids in about seven years. Happened really fast. Two sets of twins, five kids from the same birth mom. It's confusing. Either you know it or you don't. Just trust me. It's epic. So in doing all this, we've learned that there are a ton of people who want to adopt who just can't afford it. And there is great work to be done in the field of adoption of taking care of birth moms in a way that reflects the nature of Jesus and honors them. And so when we launched Zoe's House, that was always our mission. Every year we have raised funds at this massive gala, and it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. I think two years ago we had 600 people for a sit-down dinner. That's a big party. Well, along comes 2020, and nothing works like it used to. You can't put 600 people in Union Station for a sit-down dinner in 2020. It's a thing of the past. So we did a much smaller event, and it was located uh, down in Peculiar at a place called The Barn at River Bend. Uh, it was going to be mostly outdoors. And I woke up Sunday morning 
and there was a 40-mile-an-hour wind blowing. I mean, that may be an exaggeration, but not by more than about 15%. It was a gale-force wind, and it was cold. It was terrible. And I before I even pulled the covers back, I remember thinking, this is bad. This is really bad, because we're going to try and do an outdoor event, and it's just bad. Well, the wind calmed down. Uh, I would like to say the temperature came up. Temperature didn't come up that much, but the wind did calm down. We got down to the barn, and the Unruhs who own it had uh, sealed off one side uh, with um, kind of uh, oh caterer's windows. You know, they're plastic, and it cut down the wind considerably and had radiant heaters. Actually, be toasty might be a extreme version of what it got, but it was it was moderate. It was nice in there, and then you filled it up with people and gave them hot apple cider, and it was fantastic. Uh, the team shared wonderfully about what goes on at Zoe's house, shared stories of birth moms who have been ministered to. It was very moving. Then we heard from a family that had adopted through Zoe's house, and I was so touched at the tenacity of this family. They knew adoption was part of their story. Now, when you adopt, you kind of go into a pool of names, and depending on what the birth mother is looking for, you may get presented. And she they present her with two or three different families, and she chooses from those three. This family had gotten the call, would you like to be presented seven times? And either for different circumstances, not under their control, uh, they were not chosen by that particular birth mom, or a time or two, the timing for them was just not right, and they said, you know, I think we have to pass. I think maybe they said that once. But the fact that they took seven phone, and on the eighth phone call, they said yes, and they were chosen, and they have the most perfect little guy for their family, and they have fallen in love with him and with his situation. They love his birth mom, and they honor her. It was I was so touched by this couple that had said yes over and over again and put their heart on the line like that. Now, a very exciting thing happened. We went into that event with a $25,000 matching grant meaning every dollar we raised, someone would match. And we went into it with about $20,000 of that raised. So that was great. But right before the event, I got a phone call and someone said, I want to raise that matching grant with another $25,000. So we went into it with a $50,000 matching grant. $100,000 at a small nonprofit can do a lot of good. We raised some of that, but we are still uh, in need to finish out that grant. And so if uh, adoption is on your heart and you've always wondered how you could be involved, this is one way you can make a significant difference. If you go to givebutter.com slash thegathering, yes, givebutter, the word give and the word butter. Don't ask me to explain it. I can't. Givebutter.com slash thegathering. If you go there, there is a link. All of that will be credited towards the matching grant. There is a number there that has been raised. The number is actually uh, uh, more positive than that, as some things came in directly and not through GiveButter. But go to givebutter.com slash thegathering. Anything you can do will be matched up to $50,000 that will enable us to be there 24-7 for birth moms. Every time the phone rings, it gets answered. Three in the morning, it gets answered, and that's when they call. And then we are able to meet their needs, help them walk through their story, help them choose what is best for them and their child. If they choose adoption, help them find a family that matches up with how they would like their child raised, and then help a family adopt at a significantly discounted price. We uh, are able to subsidize the price of the adoption by about 40%, so they pay a fraction of what they normally would pay. Go to 
givebutter.com slash thegathering. And it's all there. Thank you so much for your help. Diving into the teaching from Sunday morning, I started a two-part series on 1 John chapter 4, as it talks about the idea of testing the spirits and why we need to do that. Uh, It wasn't intended to be a series, but um, there was just so much to cover, and we also had uh, some guests that I wanted to give opportunity to share, so I trimmed it back. We'll finish it next week, but you can dive in now, grab a Bible, 1 John chapter 4. I hope this is impactful for you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John. We're going to be in that neighborhood for a little while. Um, and again, hopefully uh, Kristen's battery holds out. We can get a bit of an update from her as well, uh, because it is good to see her face. I know you're listening to me, but you're glad to see Kristen. And uh, we all feel exactly the same way. Uh, teaching can can be based a little bit differently. It can be uh, book-based, where you take a book of the Bible and just teach through it can be chronological, where you teach through a season of time. Uh, Wayne uh, Grudman had a great book called Systematic Theology, where he broke down thoughts about God according to uh, different categories as a way to study it. It can be thematic, where you take one idea and kind of go through everything that the Bible says about that one idea. Uh, I want to introduce something a little different today. Uh, this I would be studying in what I call a ruminatic way. And uh, that is a term that I completely made up. Don't Google it. It's, it's not there yet. It will be one day. Ruminatic is when you take a passage and you just kind of ruminate on it. You sleep on it and you carry it with you as you go and uh, you chew on it. You lay down in the grass and think about it and you study the timeline and the systemic culture and the structure and the theme and all of that. But if you don't ruminate on it, if you don't stir it in your heart and you don't digest it, you end up becoming a repository of facts without the wisdom that should go along with it. Is there anything more frustrating than someone who knows the facts but can't learn from them or can't apply them? And I don't want to be like that when it comes to to God's Word. The Bible really can only be fully embraced after we've chewed on it for a good long while. There's this passage in Psalm 25, too, that um, I take great encouragement from. It says that it is the glory of the Lord to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search things out. And it's almost like God is winking at us and saying, you can do the work of kings sitting at a stoplight. You can do the best part about what it is to be a king, to be able to ponder and search out the heart of God while you're doing laundry. If you ruminate the scripture and you ponder on it. Some of you have known scriptures for years that later on in life, it's like they suddenly come alive. You've memorized scripture as a child. You didn't have a comprehension of fully what it meant as a child, but you went through a season where you needed that in a really unique way. And in pondering it, uh, the truths of God were kind of uncovered. I say all that to say is I've been uh, ruminating on 1 John for weeks, which we talked about last time I spoke. We talked about our inner life. We're going to go back to 1 John this morning and deal with the nature of our inner life and the inner life of others and how sometimes those bump up against one another. And I kind of have dual impetus for... uh, thinking about this and teaching on this. One is I'm really concerned about my charismatic friends and their treatment of this passage. 
And I'm really concerned for my non-charismatic friends and their treatment of this passage, because I think we have a tendency that when the Holy Spirit is talked about or the spirit within, we divide up very quickly and we already decide what we think it means. Paul, with no real understanding of this division at the time he was teaching this, issued us a call in 1 John to test the spirits in others in 1 John 4. This would have been a little bit surprising to them, maybe, but it wouldn't have been necessarily controversial. You know that you can divide your Thanksgiving table guests with one or two topics, don't you? You know, when you get your family together, there's a couple of those things that you just do not bring up. Because if you bring them up, Thanksgiving is going to be very different. Maybe in your family, it's politics. Maybe it's money. Why it's uh, Uncle Larry can't vote anymore. What happened? You know what? There always are things in your own family that you just know you can't bring up. And there is a paradox in the church in that all Christians say they believe the Bible, yet there are passages in the Bible that seem to divide us based on preconceptions, just like there are topics that divide your family over the Thanksgiving table. And one of those topics among the church really is the power and the operation of the Holy Spirit. The easiest example to see how this divides up is how the two different camps, and it really is two different camps, one church, but it's two camps, look at the book of Acts. Evangelicals will say that the book of Acts is historical. Charismatics look at it as a roadmap. Evangelicals look at the book of Acts to see what happened. Charismatics open up the book of Acts and say, what are we going to do today? because they look at that passage differently. The truth is it's both and, and we glean the most from the book of Acts when we use it to inform our sense of history and our sense of God's character and frame our own expectations. The God who was and who is and whoever more shall be doesn't just write history and he doesn't just write a roadmap. He writes the whole thing at once. This is kind of uh, the case with most passages that deal with the Spirit of God. We see largely what our tradition tells us to see at first glance, and none of our traditions can fully encapsulate what the Lord is talking about. This is why tradition, be it charismatic, evangelical, mainline denominational, liturgical, while we can find traditions comforting, they can actually be a hindrance in our spiritual walk because they train us to see passages one way. And the God of the universe who designed the idea of color and speaks through his printed word and through his spirit in our hearts is way more delicate than any one of our traditions will allow us to consider. Tradition is not the enemy, but it's often very less than helpful than it advertises. Now, the problem is we all find comfort in tradition. We really do. And if you're looking for comfort, tradition can deliver comfort to us, but it can deliver comfort to us completely devoid of the Spirit of God. And there are seasons that we need comforting, but being comfortable is not our highest calling. In fact, our highest calling is one that calls us out of a zone of comfort and makes us uncomfortable. It is to know the fullness of God and what Scripture tells us and then to walk in it. That's what I want for all of us. Our destiny and our comfort hardly ever coincide. And as I am spending a lot of time right now thinking of, of, of the bridge and, and what we want to build here and what it want, wants to look like, the phrase that came to me earlier this week is, and I really think this is from the Lord, and, and just 
weigh it, put it that way. I felt like the Lord said, uh, don't build the church that people want, build the church they're going to need. And looking forward into the days that are to come, I, I, want, I want there to be a church that we love and we enjoy, but most of all, I want there to be a church that meets the needs that are unique to the day. And I think for us to walk out who he is calling us to be, we have to look beyond the traditions we are raised in and say, what does the Bible say apart from, from uh, how I was raised to expect it? One of my favorite characters from recent church history is John Wimber. He's an evangelical pastor from Southern California who had a real hunger for the word, as many evangelicals do. He valued the Bible. But because he valued the Bible, he sensed that there was a real move of the Spirit on the horizon. He saw that as well. And he also found that he was in line with a lot of believers in Southern California at that time. Now, he was very out of line with a lot of pastors at that time who felt the need to stake out a position in one camp or the other. And he called where he began to land on this idea of how does the Holy Spirit work? He called it a radical middle. And I want to forge into what the vineyard started back in those days as a radical middle when it comes to valuing the word and valuing the spirit. And it's not the same as holding the two in tension so that they're both happy with you. In fact, it's, it's not that at all. If we're building a new bridge, there's going to be some new footings poured in places where we have not stood before. And that doesn't always lead us to being understood by everyone. In fact, it sometimes leads us to being misunderstood by both parties. Yeah, I jokingly say, blessed are the bridge builders, for they will be burned at both ends. This isn't because we've discovered some kind of new truth that's never been discovered before, but it's we're willing to stand in a place maybe we, we were not trained by our traditions to stand because this is what Jesus is inviting us to do. So I want to invite you to uh, 1 John chapter 4. We're going to spend the bulk of our morning there. I'll be in and out of it a little bit, and we are going to revisit our passage or our practice of backing up a few verses to see the context, because context brings clarity. Never forget to read ahead or behind of the Bible passage that you're trying to study. Do you really want to be interpreted by eight seconds out of your day? Like, Would you give us the permission to take an eight-second snippet and assume that that was your major thought of that you wouldn't want that, I wouldn't want that? Only rodeo bulls do their best work in eight seconds. The rest of us have context, and he very much has context here. So looking at 1 John 3, 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. So Paul lays out this real expectation that a spirit, a Holy Spirit, dwells within the heart of man who professes to know Jesus and keeps his commandments. He says, by this, we know, meaning the presence of the Holy Spirit was an expectation to be explored in the life of every believer. When you came to Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, you found that you had desires and drives that you did not have before. Some of you had a hunger for the Bible. You never thought about the Bible twice before you came to Jesus, and suddenly you had a hunger for it. Some of you had a desire for Christian fellowship with people that you would not have hung out with before. That was the Holy Spirit in you. Some of you had conviction of sin for things that you were not convicted of before. To this day, some of you sometimes go, oh, I feel that. I didn't feel bad about doing that last year. But there's something that as I'm growing in the Holy Spirit, I feel a conviction. All of that is the result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. And that idea of the Holy Spirit in you may sound commonplace. 
because you've heard this before. But for the audience of 1 John, this probably required some rewinding and listening again. Because even though Jesus had taught it, it was a radical idea to those who may not have heard Jesus say it firsthand. The people who John wrote to in 1 John probably never met Jesus. In the Bible times, across the known world, the further you got from Jerusalem and Jewish influence, there was a different understanding of the spirit world. It was less internal, and it was more external. And John is writing here to a very Gentile crowd. As you look at his writings in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he really doesn't uh, quote the Old Testament that much. He doesn't talk about a lot of Jewish ideas. He's writing to first the first generation of people of faith who were only a generation or two away from pantheists who saw the spirit in mountains and trees and rocks. And that is the kind of people he is speaking to when he says, the Holy Spirit lives in you. There are those who he was writing to would find this affirming and surprising at the same time. He is saying that, yes, the spirit realm is real, but it is more than external. And it's not just a fearful thing. It is a comforting thing. If you are a believer in Jesus, loneliness and powerlessness are addressed right there. You're no longer powerless and you're no longer alone. You may feel that way, but it's not true. You are empowered and the Holy Spirit is within you. And Paul is telling them, by this we know that he abides in us by the the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. That still quiet voice that you hear, maybe that dream that you can't shake, that feeling that feels like what your conscience felt like before you came to the Lord. Now it's times 10. That is the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking to you. It's real. He's more real than the struggles or the obstacles. He lives in you. Ponder that for a second. Even if eternity were off the table, the God of the universe that scooped out the Grand Canyon in one fell swoop lives inside of you. Like you can stand on the edge of the canyon and go, the God who made this lives in me. Having established that there was something real, the spirit of God within us, John starts to talk in 1 John 4 about the counterfeit or the thing, the spirit that is not of God. Now, before we read it, let me talk a little bit about the nature of there being a counterfeit and what it means that something that even counterfeit exists. Whenever something is established to be of value, generally a counterfeit springs up, especially things that are very, very deeply desired. Why can you go downtown and in a back alley buy a fake Rolex from somebody, but he's probably not selling a fake Timex? But you can buy a Timex for 20 bucks at Target. But the Rolex is expensive. And so because it is high value, those are what is uh, counterfeited. Anything with value can be counterfeited. March 13th to 15th was the weekend that most of us sat back and went, oh, something is changing. Life is different. This, the, we had no idea of how big, but we did notice that with COVID, things were going to be different for a while. That was the weekend. It, it was aware to us. Why do I point that out? Because within two weeks of our entire nation going, oh, COVID is real, U.S. customs agents at LAX were intercepting cargo planes full of counterfeit N95 masks. In two weeks, it went from all of us going, oh, this is real, to somebody going, I can make money here, and because there's something real going on, I can create a counterfeit, and I can profit from it. When something of value exists, the counterfeit is quick to rise up. The real draws the counterfeit. 
the spirit of God is within you and it's more valuable than anything you'll ever obtain, the existence of that draws a counterfeit that wants to convince people that it is something it, it is not. This is not a new occurrence. It is something that Jesus was very clear about. Matthew 24. Don't necessarily need to turn to it, but Matthew 24, 24, he says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. He said, there will be counterfeits that'll come. Say, why make a big deal out of this? Because nobody counterfeits what does not exist. The fact that something is counterfeited or fake proves that there is a real thing out there somewhere. And one of the most important activities of a believer is to be able to tell the real from the fake without ruling out the real. There are two immature uh, experiences or uh, expressions from this idea of testing the spirits that we're going to read about. The first is that there are those that embrace everything and refuse to judge between the real and the fake. All they want is for people to be genuine. They don't care if they're genuinely wrong. For them, sincerity is the measuring stick. This is the same kind of thinking that in recent years has given us the phrase, well, you go ahead and speak your truth, even if your truth doesn't line up with somebody else's truth. We say speak your truth because it's more friendly than saying speak your lie that we don't believe. But we believe in, we, we want people to be sincere, and there are some that will not test the spirits. They refuse to judge between the spirits because they just want to accept if someone's sincere, then that must be God. Then there are, on the other hand, there are those that rail against the fake and, and discern everything and yet never embrace the real. Some of those that are the most critical about uh, those who may be operating in a spirit other than the Lord also don't really embrace the Holy Spirit themselves. There are discerning ministries whose sole activity it is to point out how others are dangerous or wrong. Like that's their entire gig. And it seems unique in ministry. I was thinking about this today. You don't find it in sports. You don't find someone who dedicates their sports broadcasting career or, or writing career to tearing down another team. They find a team that they love and they might write about them more, but, but it's something unique in ministry is there are people who feel they're called to only discern and point out what is wrong. I know somebody who wrote several books and for several years would travel and speak almost exclusively about how wrong another pastor was. Like that was his ministry. And the sad thing for the poor guy is eventually the pastor who he was writing about repented and has been restored. And my friend is now struggling to make a living because he had made a cottage industry out of criticizing this guy. When the guy repented and threw his entire ministry into a tizzy. It is possible to correctly discern and lose your love for God and for people. Revelation 2, 2 to 4. They're writing the Ephesians there, and it says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He's commending them here. He said, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. You fought the good fight. You have discerned well between what is true and what is not true. Then he goes on to say, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. It's like you discerned really well. You were able to pick out who is true and who is fake. But in doing that, you actually lost the love in your heart. I'm always suspect of those who point out 
fake manifestations of spiritual activity, but refuse to believe in the real thing. They're convinced everything's fake, but fake what? If there was no move of the Holy Spirit, there'd be no counterfeit of anything. And if there's no real, then why are we told to discern between the two? But we are told to discern. I told you I'd get to, to uh, First John eventually. Um, and actually, I'm in Second John, verses 7 to 8, sorry. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such is one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so you may not lose what we have worked for, but you may win a full reward. I feel like I've missed a passage here somewhere. It could be that I read it and I didn't realize that I read a passage in first John where it talks about discerning the spirits. In other words, be careful about stewarding the spirit within you because people like ourselves can be deceived. Even people like us, we can find out that we have surrendered our Jesus to a lesser Jesus. I found the passage first John chapter four, one through three beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John gives us context here. He says, there is a spirit realm. It's real. The spirit dwells within you. And there are those in whom a different spirit dwells. Because there is a counterfeit spirit. When we rely on a counterfeit to do what the real thing is supposed to do, we can get hurt. And there are consequences on relying on that counterfeit spirit. Now, first John refers to people who are false prophets claiming spiritual authority that they don't have, but it uses them as an example rather than a point. Okay. What, what I, what I mean by that is this is not just about going out and calling people false prophets or false, false uh, apostles. The issue of false prophets or people in ministry that are false is very real, but the issue is broader than that. The issue is, what is the spirit that people carry? And John says, don't believe every spirit. Now, break here for a second. Paul said, there are those that are with us from the beginning who have launched out and now are in ministry, and the spirit within them is not the spirit of God. I love the experiential. I love the tangible presence of God. I love those deep spiritual encounters that are corporate. I was once in a meeting, in, in a large meeting, where it felt like the presence of God was so real that some people were literally getting down on the floor. It felt so heavy. But if you pursue those experiences, apart from a sense of discernment, you can find yourself moved and even attached to spirits that are other than the Spirit of God. Just because a crowd is moved doesn't mean it was God. Spirit of manipulation can move a crowd. The question is, was the leadership humble and was it really the Lord? Just because something looks like revival doesn't make it God. The spirit of conditioned behavior can look a lot like revival. The question is, does it produce fruit? And John says here, don't just assume that because there's activity, even good activity, that God is in it. He says, test the spirits. Don't test the size of the crowd. Don't test the size of the budget. We're encouraged to test the spirit in things rather than the activity. And not everyone who claims to be operating by the power of God is actually telling the truth. So don't get caught up in spiritual experiences or spiritual phenomenon or even spiritual teaching 
if you don't test the spirit that it is operating in. And it is so much broader than just ministry or public ministry. False prophets are the extreme example. His point is just test the spirits of believers and even within yourself. Just as the Holy Spirit is active and alive within us, there is a spirit operating in the counterfeit that can be every bit is real. Yesterday, when you stopped to fill gas in the car, the, the guy filling at the pump next to you was operating in perhaps in a different spirit. The person you have an appointment with in the morning may come and operate in a different spirit. The show that you're binge watching on Netflix can have a very different spirit attached, and it might not be a holy one. And at times, we even may give audience to or entertain a spirit that runs contrary to biblical behavior and the spirit of God. And just as we test the spirits in others, it's important to test ourselves. You know, I don't know about you, but it's been a strange year at our house. Actually, I do know about you. It's been a strange year at your house, too. And at times, in its strangeness and in uh, the pressure that was applied, I found that I did not always reflect the Spirit of God within me. And in fact, maybe even operated in a spirit that was counter to the one that I should have operated in. Uh, I'm on a text thread with four other guys that we call the Five Guys thread, because there's five guys. What else are you can call it? And so the Five Guys thread uh, has been going on forever. And it is everything from something we saw that was funny to something that we saw that was convicting. Um, and uh, it's just been a great encouragement to me, particularly as, uh, you know, it's been difficult to meet. It's been, it's been nice. Well, last year, uh, something happened that in light of everything else was a very small thing. But in my heart, it was attached to a big thing. And I complained upon it. Uh, more, I would say observation, but in reality, it was a complaint about it in, in this Five Guys text thread. And uh, it really was not that big a deal at all. But how I said it and the fact that I said it were wrong. Not everything that is true needs to be repeated or spoken. You learn that over time. And what I said was true, but it didn't need to be said, and it didn't need to be said the way I said it. And one of the guys, the Five Guys thread, responded immediately. He said, Randy, you don't want to respond that way. You don't want to go down that road. And it was it was his very kind way of saying, I'm sensing something here. And it's, it's not the Holy Spirit. He was testing the spirit of a brother. Now, he wasn't calling me a false prophet. He was just calling out the spirit that he was perceiving that I was operating in and saying, hey, you don't want to you don't want to be that guy. Now, did it sting? Yes, it stung. Did it make me angry? No, because it was right. And had it not been accurate, I might have felt differently. But it only hurt because it was true. And it made me a little sharper when I thought about it. Now, I could have gotten really angry. It, it was via text message. I didn't even have to respond. It's the most passive-aggressive form of communication in the world. It would have been easy just to ignore it. But I actually knew he was right, and I, I thanked him for it. And in thanking him for it, realigned my own spirit. You've got to test your own spirit at times. What is your response when somebody challenges the spirit that you are operating in? Do you defend it at all cost? Or do you test the spirit within you right alongside the spirit you're testing in everybody else? The wisest response to critique that you may get is immediately to ask, is it right? Is it right? Because if it is, 
you have learned and you have grown. If you can find those places in your life where those that are critiquing you are right and you can address them, it makes you sharper. Ignoring those critiques that are right actually makes us dull on the inside. And our dullness on the inside is our result of our resistance to test the spirits that operate around us and even within us, inviting the enemy in closer and then waking up one morning and realize there was a snake in our bed and we invited it in because we didn't root it out when someone encouraged us to test our own spirit. Now, Paul is not telling us to fear the spirit. He's telling us to test it and be aware of what we're dealing with if it's in us or if it's in others. There are those that don't want to test any spirit because to them, it feels judgmental. Well, who am I to judge? I don't want to be judgmental, so I'm just going to accept whatever happens and assume that every spirit must be good. Besides, if I judge nobody, this is actually where it's going. If I judge nobody, maybe nobody will judge me. And nobody grows as a result of that, yourself included. Judging the hearts of believers in a loving way is a repeated theme all through the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5.12 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who I am to judge? Our hesitancy to judge or evaluate and lovingly correct believers has left the body weak because of the spirits that we have allowed one another to operate in within the structure. And we think we're being kind. In reality, we're just avoiding confrontation. We're not kind, we're just passive. We think we're being peaceable, but we're actually just protecting our own time because we know if we open that can of worms, then we've got to walk that out with that person. Then when things actually blow up because we allow someone to operate in, in, in the wrong spirit within the body, when things blow up, somebody always goes, you know, I had to check in my spirit about them. Well, then why didn't you say something? Why didn't you have that conversation? If you didn't test the spirits and have the conversation, you don't get to have a check in the spirit after things hit the wall. The time to do that is when you see it in operation. There was so much testing of one another's spirits in the early church that there are times in the New Testament we would have thought, that's the most contentious group of people we've ever seen. You look at Galatians 2, 4 and 5. He says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that for the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. They weren't fighting for buildings or control of congregations. They were fighting for the truth. And in fighting for the truth, they were fighting for hearts because the counterfeit of the spirit of God is not just hoping to confuse people. He wants to kill them. 1 Peter 5.8. Now hear this and then, and then hear about the person who wrote this. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adverse adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is what the false spirit that, that masquerades as the spirit of God wants to do to you. Some of you are going, I just came to watch a teaching on computer. This sounds so paranoid, Randy. You sound completely paranoid right now. Maybe I do, but think a little bit about who wrote this. Peter wrote this, this dire warning that someone is, there's a spirit going around like a lion wanting to devour you, knowing that he operated in that spirit once himself. 
Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turns to Peter and, and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's writing this. Be careful, because there's someone wanting to devour you, and he's remembering. I actually operated in that spirit one time. I actually did that. If this is accurate, Peter warned about an enemy that was seeking to devour us, having once succumbed to the enemy's thinking himself. If that's true, maybe we need to test our own spirits once in a while. Well, how are we supposed to do this? How do you... How you really even test spirits? What some people think is testing the spirits is actually just holding on to their own personal preferences. And we do this by spiritualizing things that aren't spiritual. Maybe you go somewhere and the music was too loud and you just didn't like the spirit of what was going on because it was just not your style. Or that person struck you the wrong way and you're a big talker and they're very reserved and they just seem like they have a very different spirit. No, they're just an introvert. Do we determine the spirit? of something based on our personal preference, that cannot be true. Because the body of Christ is beautiful in that it is full of people with wildly different preferences. That is not the dividing line between what is and is not the Spirit of God. We will always find a way to divide over our, our preferences, but that is not discerning spirits. Discerning spirits is about the position of Jesus in the hearts and minds of people. That is what determines if the spirit is reflective of the Holy Spirit or if someone is challenging some or channeling something a little bit more sinister than that. If you go back to 1 John 4, where he expounds on how to tell if someone has the spirit of God or a counterfeit spirit, it has nothing to do with how they look and everything to do with how they understand and how they present Jesus. Discerning is not about mannerisms, it's about Jesus. Faith and expression is always about Jesus. It's never about what we like or uh, what we think should happen. It is about the king of the universe calling Jesus his son and our agreement with that. And that's where the counterfeit happens. It's not with our preferences, but it's with the identity of the son of God. First John 4, 2 and 3. If you're a Bible underliner, get your, get your pencil out. He says, but you know the spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. If you underline anything, underline Jesus Christ come in the flesh is from God. That he was both the son of God and a physical man. That is a full understanding of who Jesus is, and a counterfeit spirit will always run off the rails in one direction or the other. He was fully man, and he was fully God. And if we don't reach both directions to understand that Jesus was both fully man and fully God, we never fully embrace him. We never really feel the full benefit of who he is, and we're all headed off after a Jesus that is less than the Bible described and is actually less than the spirit that was promised to us. Who Jesus really is has always been a stumbling point for people. And I'm going to press pause right there and because um, I have so much more to say about this that I've actually said it our morning we quite long, and I, I want to take time and unpack it and I wanted to set up the, the importance of knowing him fully as, as a fully as a man and as the son of God. 
And when we understand who he is, we don't fall for a counterfeit spirit. And so I'm just going to actually put pause there and we'll hit play again next week. And the reason that I want to hit pause is while we still have a little bit of time left and we had a lot of people join us and we are so excited to have Kristen with us from Alaska. And I did not want, I know some of you are sitting there going, yeah, go ahead, Randy, go ahead, Randy. But Kristen is in the room, which is really what we're mostly excited about. If this is the first time you've been with us, uh, Kristen and Steve left for Alaska, what seems like uh, two weeks ago to us and seems like six years ago to them because they had quite the trip. So Kristen, I wanna ask you, if you still have any battery left to uh, unmute and um, just say howdy, but tell us about your trip. We wanna know everything. We wanna hear the story in real time. Well, we're having to repent for our heart towards the Canadians um, because that was quite the challenge. So we had, um, we had Steve's brother with us and I flew to Anchorage <clears throat> excuse me, two weeks ago with Melody, our daughter-in-law and the baby, because nobody wanted the baby traveling across the Yukon in October. So um, Steve, his brother and our son Thomas got to the border and the Canadians said, I'm sorry, you're not moving, David, you have to go back. You can't cross Canada. <clears throat> so I flew back to Montana. Oh wait, how long had you been in Alaska at this point? Three days. Long I've enough done to that get, turnaround. That's hard. That's not fun. I got, I had time enough to get my COVID test back <clears throat> because to come into Alaska, you have to have a no um, negative COVID test. So um, I flew back to Montana and learned how to drive a U-Haul in 30 seconds and then drove 2,484 miles from the U.S. border to Soldotna, Alaska. And no, I didn't drive the 16 extra miles to make it an even 2,500. So I had had enough. Now, um, for a second, explain to them what traveling across Canada was like, because you couldn't do anything. No, oh no, 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 no. Um, we were only allowed to pay at the pump. We could stay in hotels. Thank you, Jesus. That was a huge concern because we had camping equipment to prepare, prepared in case they wouldn't let us in hotels. Um, we had coolers full of food. We had, well, I didn't get to do the shopping because I was in Anchorage, but let's just say the guys thought that they'd stock up on Denty Moore stew. And um, wow, was that delicious four nights in a row. But um, anyway, so driving across Canada, you can, um, you can stay in the hotel if one person goes in and checks in and then you, everybody else goes to the room and stays there. Um, and so that's what we did. You could pay at the pump. You couldn't go in to, you could go in and use the restroom, but Canada wouldn't allow you to buy anything. So we had a, we had a window of five days to get across Canada. Um, and we made it in four um, but boy, it was, it was a long drive and I, how, just, how it, is that road? You know what? It's supposedly absolutely awful, but I think we did it at the right time of year. So they'd had all summer to fix the potholes. I mean, you're told, oh, the highway's so bad. The potholes are so awful. Make sure you have extra wheels. I mean, yeah. not just tires, but you know, the tires mounted so that you can take off one and put on the other. And it was 
I, I can see where it would be really bad. Um, but for the most part, it was good. Um, you know, there were, there were spots where it was gravel. There were places where there's no guardrails. So I kind of evaluated things like I can walk away from this crash. Number two, if I go off the edge here, I'm going to be in a world of hurt, but I'm going to survive. Um, number three, just call life flight. And number four, there's not enough left. I'm okay with create with cremation. So, um, it was, it was a staggeringly beautiful drive. Um, it was a very lonely drive. Um, you know, I was, you're all driving your own trucks. We're all driving in our own trucks and there's just not that much out there. I mean, it would, it, you're advised to every time there's a place to stop for gas, stop and get it. Cause you don't know if the next place will be open. So, I mean, we, we could drive a hundred miles and not see another car or another indication of civilization or what have you, but stunningly beautiful. I mean, the Lord has created an amazing place. There is no shortage of trees in this world. <laughs> because it's nothing but forest. So we saw four bears, um, a herd of elk, several caribou, and at one point in time, lots of bald eagles. And at one point in time, the buffalo permitted us a lane to go through. It was iffy, but you know, they you, were- You sound like an Alaskan because you can differentiate between elk and caribou. That's pretty <laughs> impressive already. <laughs> Well, it, it took a little research in the hotel in Whitehorse, Yukon, but we wanted to know for sure what we were seeing. So, so we're so here. You're, you're there now and looking yeah. for a home. Looking for a home. So we think we found one. We've put in an offer, but you know, we had a house when we left Kansas City and in the middle of the Yukon, that deal fell through um, because the appraisal came in lower than what the seller wanted. So um, she nixed the offer and decided to stay in her home. And so we're searching, but we, we found a home. It is going to take probably about six weeks for us to get into it. So we have found another place that we are going to rent now for the next six weeks and um, kind of sort of unpack, but not really. Right. So anyway, so we just, we would ask for your prayers that um, we would be able to get into our actual location quickly. Um, little Awen is our granddaughter. She's just about one. We'd love for her to be in her own home um, on her first birthday, which is November 13th. So that would be a really, that would be a really good thing. Um, and then just start to pray that we would be able to connect with our community um, ready to start work, but the COVID stuff has gone, has skyrocketed in Alaska and we're under red alert again, which means the entire school that we're going to be working with, um, is on, is on high alert and everything's virtual. So pray for students. A lot of them, um, you know, a lot of them, this is their first experience away from home, but when they get here and they're living in a dorm, and they, they don't have a roommate because of COVID, um, it's easy to go in your room and shut the door. 
and not interact with other people. And so um, there's just deep concern for their mental health. Um, there's deep concern for their emotional and spiritual well-being um, during these times. So anyway, but it's was, so good to be at church with you. <laughs> I was so touched. Steve sent, uh, sent some of us a couple of pictures yesterday of the students who were helping unload the truck. And uh, just to his comments, you could tell his heart was so tender toward these guys. Yeah. Uh, and it just really blessed me. I just saw that, that pastor rise up again in him uh, and love on these kids. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that is, that's why we're here is just this passion and heart to give hope to these kids, um, to make them feel loved and accepted and, the tragedies in their, I, I mean, the tragedies in their life are huge. Um, one kid told Steve on the day they were unloading the truck, he said, yeah, last year was a hard year. My dad went under the ice and we were just thankful to find his body, you know? And it's like, oh, you, I want to take you home. I want to adopt you. I want to, you know, find ways for Jesus to minister to your heart through me somehow. So anyway, just, just pray that we find ways to connect with these kids, even though everybody's on high alert of not being around each other with COVID. So two real more quick questions real quick. Is sure. Caitlin elated to have a family with her right now? <laughs> Caitlin has actually been sick. So she's not being around us because she doesn't want to um, give that to Steve. She is, um, experiencing for the first time what it, what it means to have um, a house deal fall through. She thought she'd been part of finding the perfect house. And um, yeah, her dream's been brutally murdered uh, and she's upset. Uh, <laughs> secondly, uh, just in the next week, like yes. how can we pray for you guys? What are some markers, some things maybe just need to happen soon that we can pray for you right now? Yeah, pray for, um, so we had an inspection on the house yesterday that we put in an offer on. It seems to have gone really well. Um, pray for a quick appraisal, pray for quick paperwork to go through all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then again, just like I said, that we'd find ways to connect with our community. Um, I, I te Randy and I were texting at one point and I was at Walmart and I, I hate to say it, but Walmart was strangely comforting. You know, it was just, it, it, it's, it's driving down the road and these big signs that say 79 moose have been killed on Alaska highway or the Sterling highway, which is our highway since July 1st, drive with caution. You know, and you're kind of like, how do 79 moose die on this highway? And where are they? And all of that. So, um, yeah, we want to connect with our community. It it is a disorienting feeling to. Well, one of the things that that was in my mind a lot while we were driving um, was the old line from from wedding vows that says, "And all my worldly goods I thee endow." <laughs> it was like, "All my worldly goods are in that you haul there." So, um, yeah. So just to be this transient stage feels awkward. Mm -hmm. um, but we want to, we want to land. We want to find home. We want, we, we, we just want to commit. I heard the Lord ask me, will you give your life to Alaska? And I said, yes. And I want to 
I want to commit my life to Alaska for whatever that means. And wow, there we are. Thanks for listening to the third cup of coffee. If you would like to connect with us more closely, go to thebridgekc.church. Thebridgekc.church. We'll see you next week.